Hello, and welcome to the Screen Composer Studio, a podcast about the musical storytellers behind some of your favorite films, shows, video games, and more. I'm your host, Adrian Ellis. Trevor Morris is without a doubt one of Canada's most successful exports in the screen composing world. After cutting his teeth writing jingles in Toronto, he made the jump to Los Angeles, where a chance meeting landed him a gig with his hero, James Newton Howard. This led him to Media Ventures, where he put in four years of incredibly hard work and learning under Hans Zimmer. At the dawn of the golden age of television, his music was part of the winning formula that saw the Tudors revolutionize the costume drama and become a massive international hit. His music also graces blockbuster shows like Vikings, video games including Dragon Age, Inquisition, and big studio films like London Has Fallen and Hunter Killer, starring his buddy Gerard Butler. This two-time Emmy winner shares his candid perspective about the ups and downs in this tough and competitive business, being a Canadian in Los Angeles, the dangers of being honest on social media, and how he sees the industry changing. If you like what you hear, please consider giving us a rating and sharing the episodes with your friends and followers. This really helps us grow and share the stories of these amazing creators. And now, please enjoy this fascinating conversation with Trevor Morris. Trevor, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Good to be here. Yeah. Yeah, thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate your time. Um, my first question, as far as you know, did His Holiness Pope John Paul II ever hear your music? You know, I know where you're going with this. Uh, <laughs> I, I, it was sent to him. Um, what Aiden's referring to is my first bona fide commission. I was 13. I was going to a, a school for the art, so to speak, in uh, London, Ontario, where I grew up. And that year, the Pope was coming through Ontario, which is like, when you grow up in a Catholic school, that's like, you know, like Big Jagger or, or you know, whatever coming through town. And so I got commissioned to write something uh, for our, our graduating choir, which I was a part of. So I wrote it for a piano, four-part choir, and I used the text from one of his, the Pope's books. And the idea was to perform it live for him, but this is really when the beginning of the whole plexiglass dome on top of the Pope's car thing was becoming real. And security wouldn't let us do it. So we had it recorded uh, in our church where we graduated and sent to him. But the, I don't know. I never heard back. <laughs> <laughs> you kind of talk about that in other interviews, that that was a kind of turning point for you in terms of, I think, commission. And then just sort of thinking about a story around the music. Is that true? Yeah. I mean, I got I got 50 bucks. You know, I, I made I made bank when you're 13 to, you know. But no, more importantly, it was the beginning of the bug of being able to, uh, you know, tell a story through music. You know, I mean, it was inspired by the, his words. So it was storytelling at its infancy for me. Right. Uh, you're definitely one of Canada's most uh, successful exports in the film scoring world. But um, <laughs> you came up out of out of London, Ontario, uh, went to Fanshawe for music industry arts. Mm -hmm. And then you kind of got your feet wet uh, doing more commissioned music in the jingle scene. What was it about that? I know one of the things you said it was like making a record every day. What what was that scene like back then? I mean, this this was the glory days of the Toronto uh, jingle scene. At that time, the three big cities for commercials were New York, Chicago, and Toronto, the big Mad Men kind of era. So at this point, you know, I was more an engineering producer. I actually wanted to be a record producer at this point. I mean, I'm 19. I was very I was very young and eager. So I went I went to Fanshawe at 18. Graduated at 19, and uh, the day I graduated, I basically went into the workforce. Um, but Toronto was this thriving, robust city for commercials. Every every studio is booked every day, all the time. 
but it had a robust record industry, but it worked around the hours of jingles because they paid the bills. So we would do jingles all day and then do records all night and all weekend, um, which was fun. But then when it got around to me graduating more to the idea of uh, becoming a composer, because I saw all the the writers were all the cool dudes, you know, and they drove the cool cars and, and uh, all that. So I sort of around 24, something like that, I moved into writing jingles. And the thing about it, that I so appreciate now that I didn't even know then is every day is a new challenge. I mean, unless you have an encyclopedic knowledge of music, they say, Hey, we need you to write Dixieland music today. You're like, okay, I have no idea what that is, but I'm going to find out real fast, you know, and this is pre-internet I might add. Um, so we would, we would took it very seriously. So we would, we would write it, get it approved, go in the studio. We do drums, bass, guitar, B3. Then we do, background singers or choir. Then we do the solo singer. It's like making a record. Then we use the same equipment, same technology that's made all the best records. So if we were emulating a band in spirit, you know, we're making it like a Bush kind of, of a record today, or we're doing classical or we're doing Dixieland or we're doing bluegrass. And it was an amazing, amazing way to cut my teeth um, and satisfy my desire for high quality, you know, sounding stuff. I mean, we took it real seriously and it was where I cut my teeth in writing for picture. This is sort of prior to the days of extremely high quality samples and uh, samples being readily available. Do you feel that part of what's made you successful and part of why you're able to create such rich and evocative sonic landscapes is because you had to make that stuff in that grind that you were in from scratch as opposed to like sort of getting into the thing of like, oh, I can just buy that sample library and then use it and sound like everyone else? Yeah, I mean, I could talk for an hour about the my personal journey through technology and samples and all that stuff. But, but you're correct. At the time, this is mid to late '90s now, right? So at the time, the the Roland S760 was the sampler. That's when you know Hans Zimmer had you know 30 of them in Iraq, and everyone was like that. But I had, uh, I think I had six of them, and and this is the beginning of orchestral samples. There were some decent strings, but mostly not. You couldn't really, you know. You couldn't do a quote-unquote mock-up like you can now. But, you know, being kind of an engineer-producer, the the sonic quality of things is just as important to me as the composition. Not, and not all composers are like this. Not that it's better or worse, but um, it has to sound great for me. It just does, you know. I, I don't like things that sound, <laughs> you know, unfinished. Uh, so uh, that's part of it, you know. But, I mean, now the, the, the samples are so readily available, it's not even – it's open to anybody. But – the missing link in here is that, you know, when I, uh, when I was uh, Hans Zimmer's assistant for four years, four and a half years, he kind of created this, the modern style of mock-up and at that time had his own personal sample libraries from the London orchestra that no one had This is before Spitfire. So I learned from the best, you know, he kind of created this, this craft or technique of, of mocking up or making orchestral samples. And he just, there were no samples, so he made his own. <laughs> um, so that was something I'm grateful for. I, I'm going to jump ahead a little bit just because we're on the topic. And, and this is something that really struck me, especially listening to Hunter Killer. I mean, th the production level on that score is just so beyond. Like, it really kind of kicked my ass, to be honest. I was listening to it and going, good God, this sounds good. Like, I thought, you know, I was kind of feeling a little good about myself <laughs> just before that. And I'm like, okay, ways to go. <laughs> there, There's this quality to your work that is so layered and rich, as I was saying, and, and 
it's it's what you know Christian Henson really points this out which I don't a lot of people don't talk or not very many people talk about this, this idea of zeitgeist this idea of capturing the sound of a moment mm-hmm. so you came up in that in that camp with Zimmer and we'll sort of get to where, how you got there but you know you're coming up with people like Ramin Jawadi and uh Jablonski and all, all these kinds of folks and for me also uh, Rupert and Harry Gregson Williams, uh, John uh, Powell. There's a kind of sound that comes out of that camp, which has to do with what I think you were talking about Zimmer doing, which was this sample creation and that focus on that sonic thing. Like, is that part of what that whole education was about? Was sort of getting that that focus on that, those sounds, or is that something you brought in the toolkit with you already? And how do you develop that? Like, how do you focus on keeping those skills at such an incredibly high level? Yeah, it's it's a good question. It has a couple of different answers. One, I brought. I think one of the reasons Zimmer and I got along, at least in the early days, uh, was that he's incredibly beyond his his music, which we all know and love. He's incredibly, incredibly smart man when it comes to engineering type thinking, and that's a gift I was given. Whoever gives out the gifts, thank you. I just have a brain. <laughs> that. I don't know why I don't deserve it more than anybody else, but uh, I'm kind of good with that stuff. So we got along that way. Um, for him, the technology is as important as the music in some strange way. So I brought my own toolbox to the sandbox with that. But with him, you know, in his world, in the little bubble of, of media ventures, a remote control now, um, his value system is the only value system that's allowed. Uh, it's a bit of a, a benign dictatorship, I guess. <laughs> a nice way of saying it. Um, so his values are definitely based around cutting edge technology, you know, doing shit no one else is doing, which really sucked for me when I was his technical assistant, because I was the one who had to make that stuff work, you know. <laughs> By the way, can I swear on this or is that against the... Yeah, sure. Absolutely. Darren Fung set the bar very high for for uh, cursing on the show, so you're yeah. good to go. <laughs> Last time I saw Darren, he poured a beer on my shirt by accident. Oh, good stuff. <laughs> so good. Uh, no, in, in Zimmer's world, there's a, there's a very high uh, emphasis on, you know, being able to use technology, uh, his analogy was always like mastering an instrument. You want to be the best trumpet player in the world, the best piano player in the world. The dedication of that is the dedication you put into Cubase, which is what we use and still use. All right. Um, so a bit of both. You know, I have a huge desire for the euphonic nature of things. I love high quality recording gear. I'm the first one to say I hate network audio. I've always hated it. Uh, the reason it's popular is it's cheap. But I don't always want cheap. You know, I want good. So... Um, it's just part of, of, of what, you know, like for example, Harry Gregson, he went into that world with no technical knowledge. He was really a classicist and maybe Rupert too, to an extent. Mm-hmm. But, um, so they had to get educated in that. For me, it was not as hard a transition for some, you know, because I already bring that to the table in my mind. But uh, I think that, you know, I, I, I keep forgetting sometimes when I run into other composers that, that the tech stuff doesn't come as naturally to them as it does to me. So I, I've come to be really empathetic about people who go, I, I don't know how, you know, to do that. But if you listen to John Powell, I said this in my last interview, if you listen to John Powell's mock-up for Star Wars, it's on his Instagram page. His, he is the key editor. I mean, it's just, there is no, yeah, that sounds like it could be good or that, that sounds like it could be a Star Wars cue or I'm, I'm sort of feeling it's completely finished music. And there's no, there's no, you know, wincing or thinking, will it be like, it's so crystal clear mm-hmm. it's a skill that he didn't have until he went through the Zimmer world and developed. So it's important to me. 
uh, it was important to me before I met Hans, and now it's just in my DNA and all my assistants and people I work with. I teach them the importance of this, and I think that people are finally starting to get away from the idea of blaming the mock-up as the bane of their existence and realizing that that word should no longer exist. And it's mm, right. It's incumbent upon you, the composer, he or she, to make the director feel your music, not make excuses. Yeah. So if you're talking about, let's say, uh, something like the Tudors or parts of Vikings, because I know that Vikings has a lot of electronic elements in it, and then moving to something like Iron Fist or Hunter Killer, when you're creating these sort of richly layered sonic textures, lots of synth stuff, lots of like processed audio, do you have a different mindset about how you're creating that stuff? Do you work differently when you're making that? Mm, yes and no. <clears throat> I think it's kind of a... Uh, a mindset when you wade into the water of a new project and you're starting from scratch from blank space is to like take hunter killer for example it's in a submarine you know we're subterranean a lot of the time so i didn't envision a very shiny score you know i envision everything having a little bit less top end on it and the director it turns out does not really like a lot of melodic work so i, I snuck in one tune which is the uss <laughs> the rest of it is is not very french horn heavy I had to fight to get the French horn tune into the into that. But then the whole thing becomes dark and, and lots of filtering. And it's just you set these rules for yourself on an aesthetic you have in your mind. Um, and it happened to be this one was uh, we had an orchestral budget, but I ended up using only cellos and basses from the strings. Oh, wow. In it at all. Okay, wow. I was wondering about that because there was a cue and I'm like, it really feels like this is a cello doing the main line here. But... You know, they're sort of up in the viola register a little bit. I'm like, yeah, there's no high string. Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah. And what it does is it creates the sense of masculinity um, with, uh, you know, which it's kind of deserved, you know, big and very male uh, oriented kind of cast and all that stuff. But then really the the dark subterranean electronic stuff is where I just love that stuff these days. I'm all about that. You know, I, I love the orchestra and always will. But, you know, creating some of the dark subterranean textures and, and all that stuff. I just, you know, I, I love cultivating scores that way. It really makes me tick. Um, so I, you know, not every project needs it or is appropriate for it, but when it is, I, I'm, I'm all about it. Do you set, like, I mean, for me, it feels very different to write uh, like a string quartet ish piece or like four voice kind of string stuff versus the way that I would approach something if I'm making something that's more electronic based where there's a lot more experimentation, there's fiddling with stuff, there's sort of coming up with ideas of how to run things through different processes and see what you come up with on the other end. Do you structure your working days or your writing days? Like do you have just like free experimentation days when you, when you work that way? Depends on the project. TV is kind of punishing, so it's tough to do that. So, like, say, for example, Big Sky, when I was developing the language, because I knew that it was going to be a punishing schedule, I wouldn't have time to, you know, go fishing, I call it. Mm. So I, I spent, you know, some lead up time writing some cues in advance. Uh, I do this a lot where I just experiment. In this case, I hired the world's best guitar player here in L.A., and it was set in Montana. So that had a Big Sky Montana, to me, spoke of Americana, spoke of instruments like the dobro or the ukulele or things like this. Okay, well, what does that look like? How do I express tension and release and anxiety and stuff through guitars? Like, oh, this is cool and it excited me. So I went and loaded my, my template with every you know sample guitar out there I could find, both textural, you know, and both uh, and legit, like just standard acoustic. So there's, there's an example of creating an aesthetic in advance and that's the best time to do it is when you have a little bit of time 
uh, movies are much easier that way because uh, you know uh, the, the truth is writing movie scores is a lot easier than writing TV scores. I know it may not be a popular truth, but it, it craft wise, I'm talking about it's it's so much easier for me, right? You know, because you have six weeks to write eighty minutes of music or whatever, or eight weeks. You know, I, I write twenty seven minutes of score in four days for Big Sky. You know, wow, schedule that I've been given so. Uh, for me, movies are a chance to, uh, as strange as it may seem, to relax my schedule and play more and spend more time in, behind me in the synth wall. But when it's something's go time, I try to do it in advance and discover aesthetics and the language and the plugins that I like or buy some new libraries that inspire me and kind of go, okay, I'm all in on that. Mm -hmm. When I think of the word zeitgeist and what Henson is often talking about, I think when he's when he's discussing that, it's it's about keeping up with the times to a certain degree in a sound and looking where that sound is developing, keeping your ear to the ground. Do you find that's something that you enjoy or does it cause a certain level of anxiety in terms of the competitiveness of the industry and that somebody's always trying to, you know, cut, off, cut you off or get in the lane ahead of you? And sometimes that's a sonic thing. Is it something you're always doing, searching for new sounds, figuring out what's next for you? Uh, or is it more of an internal process where you're going, it's just going to be about me. It's what does Trevor want to hear next? I think it's changed over time. That's a dynamic question. So um, I, I'm a huge soundtrack fan. I always had been before I was a professional, like before I did this for a living. But I used to listen to every single soundtrack that came out of any current or independent movie that was on my radar. I'd say mm. top to bottom, you know all of James Newton Howard's work, the late great James Horner's work. And as time goes by, I kind of, I've come to sort of know who I am. And the fact that, you know, take Hilder, her, there's a zeitgeist moment. She comes out of nowhere. She was Johan Johansson's assistant. She passed uh, and then Sicario 2 came up and she was the natural choice and she plays cello. So for her, she interprets storytelling through her instrument. You know? mm -hmm. It's not unusual, but it happened to be that between Chernobyl, which was, very much an inventive score and then the joker that that became the zeitgeist when everybody i saw a sample library that came out it basically said we make hilder like guitar tech <laughs> there's, there's an example of what i don't do i don't chase a trend like that like oh that's what's popular let's go do that it's, it's, i'm over that you know it's so easy to fall into that trap to try to chase success um you know but you know it's like when the girl with the dragon tattoo came out, everybody on planet earth wanted that score and that score only for like a year, maybe. Mm. And so you're trying to not get fired and you're trying to bring you to the table, but they were chasing the success of that show and that score uh, and producers chase success first, originality second, most of the time. Mm -hmm. So sometimes it's hard to go, okay, I know you want Sicario or you want the girl with the dragon tattoo or you want Chernobyl, but I want to bring me to the table and have to wean them off that. You know, uh, they like the score because the score is great, which it is. And they like it because the movie was successful or the show was successful. Or she won an Oscar and Emmy and a Grammy, every other thing you can win that year. So, oh, that must be successful. We need to do that. Right. Which is a flawed approach to creating successful, you know, content. But I've come to be empathetic of, of the fact that producers sometimes just need something to, to point at because they don't speak our language, you know. Sure. So I try to, uh, to answer your long-winded question, a long-winded answer. I don't listen to if I, once I see the show or the movie, I don't listen to the soundtracks anymore. I listen to classical music or I just sort of go my own world and try to innovate in my own way. Speaking of this idea of what producers are looking for and how they're sort of creating these benchmarks for what they're going to ch like what road they're going to go down. 
you've spoken about this before, this idea that Netflix has been successful largely because what they do is they light, they, they green light projects and then they get out of the way. Um, or at least that's been sort of one of the stories that's been told about how they work with independent production companies. Do you think that that's the way forward? Do you think that's a better way of working overall in terms of how we approach these kinds of artistic and creative projects? Oh, that, that's a great question. With a, And there's, there's a micro and a macro view of that. The macro view is, from my perspective, that Hollywood is finally changing. You know, we're getting rid of Harvey Weinstein's of the world, Scott Rudin's and, and Joss Whedon's probably next. And these guys who've been megalomaniacs and just terrorizing people. And, and uh, mm. so that is changing. We're being more inclusive, of course, now. Um, I mean, I, I honestly applied for a job last week that I knew half the producers on. They said we're only accepting um, submissions from females. Mm-hmm. So we're there. The pendulum has swung all the way that way. Right. So that's the that's the big view of that. And uh, what, one of the examples that comes to mind that I think is an amazing story is Shonda Rhimes, who is just a powerhouse. You know. Right. Um, she's uh, for those who don't know who she is, you should know who she is. <laughs> Showrunner, writer, creator, uh, Grey's Anatomy, among other things, our longest running medical drama, eighteen years running. She had a, a very lucrative deal with wherever she was with before. And just moved to Netflix. And in her interview, she said the whole reason was, you know, she's like, I made a multi-billion dollar revenue stream for this studio. And they're still giving me notes. Like a lot. She's like, basically, in so many words, leave me alone. I'm pretty good at what I do. You're making tons of money. Just sit back. And Netflix promised her this. You come over here. You can do whatever you want with almost no oversight. And that's why she moved. And now she's the highest paid showrunner in the history of television. I think she took the job not so much for the the money, maybe what the money stands for because she's a strong black woman is a good thing, but Mm -hmm. what she really went for was autonomy. So it's tough because I love the collaborative aspect of this job, but there are times when you get someone in the mix who really shouldn't be honestly commenting on on the music uh, in the same way that I can't comment on set design. You know, I could vote for the Oscars. I vote for things that I can speak to. And who am I to vote on costumes? It doesn't make any sense, right? So I think the idea of um, being on a project where you're given more latitude to be creative is better. I think no notes is not the way to go. I mm. don't like that. I like some back and forth. It shows that the clients care. But um, I'm hoping the idea of chasing the latest trend, you know, it will never go away. But I think there's so much more to be had from a creative being than having them chase something else. You know, like uh, uh, Michael Dana, are probably our greatest, and Howard Shore, our greatest Canadian composers. Uh, Dana always talks about putting on a costume. It's like, why are you not, you're not being you, you're putting on a, a Zimmer costume and being him. I just saw a comment in perspective forum today. Someone said that the client said, you really Zimmered the shit out of that. And he was so excited. And I'm like, is that a compliment? Or I didn't, I didn't comment, but in my head, I'm like, that sounds like congratulations. You sound like someone else. You know, I, I don't know. I think that the idea of uh, of it just being really top heavy, megalomaniac, super control freak kind of stuff is starting to mellow a bit, and people are actually embracing creativity. At least that's the hope. That's my hope. That trend goes. There. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, it does. It does feel like that's the Netflix, perhaps in in some of the good things that it's doing in that way, are kind of proving that you don't need to have a stranglehold on every single decision, and you can let you can hire good people and let them do what they do. You know. But I agree with you. I like notes, too. I mean, it, it is that nice because uh, you don't have all the best ideas necessarily. And sometimes you just need to talk to someone who goes, 
well, what about this? And you go, oh, that's a cool idea. Yeah, let's try that. Totally. I think that we get intellectually really close to it. And my my one of my favorite executive producers, actually, she's a very close friend of mine, Sheila Hawkin, there in Toronto. We've worked together for so long. We have such a shorthand that when she really disagrees with me, instead of being defensive, I go, well, she must she must really see something that I don't see because we respect each other enough to go like that. Or if I think she's wrong, I'll be like, you know what? I'll rewrite the cue for you, but I really think what I did is the way to go. Would you at least promise to bring it to the dub stage and give it another look on another? Mm. Mm. We have that very, you know, mutual respect. And to me, that's the ultimate, you know, I mean, it's just the way it should be. They hire you to be you to do good work. And when they have some notes, it means they care and they want to sculpt it. That's the sweet spot for me. Yeah. Not every uh, that's it, but <laughs> I love that. I love that as a negotiation tool. Okay, I'll do this your way, but promise me you'll review this at the dub stage again. That's great. I'm going to use that. <laughs> so going back to when you were 26, you were working in the studio doing the jingle stuff, and you're with David Green and Amin Batia, and that's sort of where you get your first sort of shot at working in television proper. Is that right? Correct. So I um, I was a jingle writer in town, and um, at that time. I mean, Batia was a rock. Oh, he still was a rock star. I'm just saying, by that time, he was really on the ascent in his career, if not already heading toward the peak. Um, and, you know, there weren't a lot of projects in Toronto. It's not like it is now, you know, where it's a robust, thriving thing. So there's only a handful of composers who did everything. This will segue to why I moved to LA in the first place. But Amin was doing, you know, uh, a lot of good work. And he just got overwhelmed and got this show and said, hey, it's a, it's a kind of a, sci-fi sort of thing. Do you want to co-write it with me? In retrospect, I, I don't even know why me, but I was so thrilled um, that he would give me a chance. He was the first guy to really give me a chance to say, you know, I see something in this kid that I think you know, could be worth worth trying. And so we collaborated on the score. It's really somewhat cheesy, but fun fun show called Code Name Eternity back in the day. But I, we did 22 episodes of this, and I did half the score, and he did half the score, and it was my first time being responsible for that kind of music and everything. So, and David Green was his mentor, and I know David from the engineering world, and his his wife was the, a teacher at MIA when I was there, Jan Green. So for me, that world was very small, but it was my first real chance to see how the sausage was made in the in the sense that David was an administrator and mixer because men didn't mix. Uh, so David mixed all his stuff and I'm in just making great work and having me along for the ride. So it was my first chance to write a television show. Ironically, I was about to move to L.A. I was right on the edge and then I stayed back for a year to do this because I couldn't pass it up. You know, when you're when you're young, you, you think you'll only get one shot and never work again. So you don't want to say no to it, you know. And. I mean, when you did decide, you weren't really super excited. You're still wearing your Toronto Maple Leafs hat. You're a big Toronto fan. You didn't really want to move to L.A. You did so anyways. And I think what you tell a great story about the initial shock of having your wonderful life savings sort of be reduced to ashes by the exchange rate. What was the culture shock like when you landed in L.A.? What were the, some of the first experiences you had there? Yeah, I, I mean, just to, to back up the, the genesis of the story is correct. That is, I, I was... I'm like late nineties. I'm in my late twenties. I really wanted to be a TV composer. I'd done enough jingles. I, I knew that for me, the, I call it the alchemy of music and sound, the one plus one equals three thing. Mm. And there was no white space. It was only four composers who did everything. It was John Wellsman, Mimitia, Jack Lenz, and someone else. And that was it. There was, 
and this is the part of Canada that's changed a lot. And there's a little bit of tough love for the country that I love is at the time, Canada wasn't interested in, in new. They didn't want to discover anybody. What they wanted was what, what, what worked. So um, every time I tried to get in the door on a project, like, no, we're good. We don't want another young voice. I think that's changed dramatically. But when I was there, that was the case. So I said to uh, myself, I'm going to go to L.A. I'd heard horror stories of people going to L.A. and getting their ass kicked. I'm like, well, I'm a resilient guy, but I'm going to go. I'm going to give it a go. If it doesn't work, I can always come back and write jingles. At this point, I was really at the height of my jingle career, making good money. I was one of the known guys in town. So I just moved there. It's a cliche, but I mean, I, with all my stuff, packed it up and just went there with no plan, no job, no prospects, no nothing. And uh, no credit rating, as I found out the hard way. <laughs> LA was a culture shock. And the only place that would rent to me um, was uh, this Indian couple who just happened to love Canadians. They picked up on my accent and they said, are you Canadian? There's a, there's a guy in, true story, there's a guy in scrubs on his break writing a check for the first month's deposit. And, doctor, right? I'm going, okay, well, I guess I didn't get this place. And they looked past the doctor and everyone else and came over to me and said, are you Canadian? I said, yeah. I said, the house is yours. <gasps> wow. And so this is where it gets interesting. I had saved at the time all the money in the world. I saved 32000 bucks. My mom lent me some money, whatever. And this apartment was, I want to say two grand a month or something, whatever it was, right? So they said, okay, I'll tell you what, you have no credit rating. We'll need you to pay first, last, security and a fourth month deposit to sort of make, I'm like, totally fine. I'm like, please take my money. So that's eight grand, right? Wow. So the Bank of America, I deposit my 32,000 bucks. They hand me back the little slip and your, your deposit is, your, your rebalance is 17,900 bucks. <laughs> and I nearly like, it chopped one of my legs off. And this was the days of Canada being 50% exchange rate from this. Right. Day. Oh my God. So that was really dispiriting. I went into credit card debt pretty immediately, but America is a very different country in so many ways. You know, the, the money's all the same size and all green and hard to sort, you know, versus British or Canadian money. These, the streets, the intersections are bigger. So running an orange light feels totally different here than it does in Canada. Little things that you would only know if you knew the difference between the two. My wife always corrects me that she says, you can stay California, not America, because I don't know anything else about America except for Alberta. <laughs> right. Um, it was a culture shock, man. Everything's different. And, and uh, the size of the streets and the money and the culture and, you know, you can buy, you can buy alcohol at any corner store. Just things that are just different that were a culture shock to me and took some getting used to um, just being from Canada, you know, um, the weather, of course, too. <laughs> traffic. <laughs> How long were you on the ground? uh grinding before, like without really a glimmer of uh, hope or direction? Oh, a good year and a half. Wow. A good year and a half. Yeah. One of the, one of the, as soon as you get to Canada, as soon as you get to the States, the first thing you do is look for other Canadians. You know, they're, you're a very gregarious bunch, us. And a voiceover friend of mine um, who lived in, the, lived in, uh, in Hollywood Hills was having drinks with me. He said, can I give you one piece of advice? I said, please. He goes, don't go home. I go, what do you mean? He goes, just stay, stick it out. Because so many people come to the, to LA from Canada or anywhere else who are hot shots in their business and they get humbled and they go home with their tail between their legs. He's like, LA is going to make you work for it, but it's so worth it. It's a 10 X exponential world. It's actually more than that at the time in terms of opportunity, but you got to not leave. And mm. You know what I mean? It was like, all right. Reno Romano, my voice of everybody from Canada said that. And at that point I was determined to go, okay, I will, I was just going to stay until 
Yeah, they run out of money, you know what I mean, or whatever. And so that resolve got me through that first year and a half. There's a fantastic story you tell about getting hooked up with one of your heroes through a weird recommendation on a singer for a demo that you're working on. Can you tell that story? <laughs> great one. So James Newton Howard is, was and still is my, my idol, film score idol. And we're friends now because I worked for him for a while. But at the time, I was pitching on, I was pitching on something and, and the score for uh, A Perfect Murder had come out from him, which with Gwyneth Paltrow and Michael Douglas, I thought the score was just so cool. And there was this angelic, beautiful voice on there. And I was demoing for something. And the only other composer that I knew was a female. And I said to her, do you know a female singer who sounds something like this for my demo? She goes, yeah, I'll send her over to you. Pay her a demo fee. She comes over. I record her. Sings beautifully. We've got chit-chatting. She's like, you seem to be good at engineering stuff. Because I, I was engineering the session. I said, yeah, I, in a previous life, I was an engineer. But I really want to be a composer. Nothing of it. Uh, a couple of days later, called my friend Sophia and said, hey, thanks for the recommendation of the singer. Man, she sounds a lot like the girl from from." The, she goes, dude, pick up the soundtrack and turn it. Look at the credits. It is Lizbeth Scott, one of our great singers. So it was actually her. And I had no clue at all until after she left. I felt like an idiot. But, uh, <laughs> uh, to finish the story that you haven't asked yet is Lizbeth um, was really good friends with James Newton Howard's right-hand man uh, engineer, Jim Hill. And their um, go-to assistant was sick, sick like ill sick kind of thing. So she called me and said, hey, do you want to do some sub-in, uh, basically assistant engineering, which is something that I'd done for years and years, back to my technical skills, helping open doors for me? Mm. Said, sure. She goes, okay. And she didn't tell me who yet. And um, so the phone rings and uh, it's, it says J&H Productions on the phone, you know, and like a schoolboy, I'm like freaking out, right? <laughs> I got to work for James and his engineer, Jim, who's still a dear friend of mine as just, you know, plugging in patch cords and pro tools and stuff like that. And, but I got to walk in the door. Uh, I'm a year and a half in LA with no prospects getting pretty bleak. And now I'm standing next to James Newton Howard, my personal hero in this gorgeous facility, latest technology, working on a big Disney animated, you know, hundred million dollar movie. And it was just like, all right. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm never leaving. <laughs> this is this is what I want to do. I'm going to die trying. But it was an interesting connection that got me there. And that connection, while it didn't turn out that you could stay with James, ended up getting you in the door at remote control at that time. Yeah. Uh, we're on scoring stage, the late Todd Tadeo scoring stage, and we're on break. And I said, James, may I speak with you, please? I said, listen, I know I'm here as a – we did two movies together, two or three movies together. I said, I know I'm here as a Band-Aid, but – I'd love to work for you. I was just like, fortune favors the bold in my head. I got to ask, right? And at the time, James, just before James worked with Hans, he was a very small team. It was just him, uh, a receptionist, and his guy, Jim. He said, listen, man, I don't have a job for you. I appreciate it. And I was kind of like, I'll do anything. <laughs> he said, but you seem good with technical skills. I know that Hans is looking for somebody. And I was a huge admirer of Hans, of course. And so he picked up the phone and said, hey, I have this kid and he said, send him over. And their studios are four blocks apart from each other. So I walked from James Howard's to Media Ventures and I walked in the door and uh, his current assistant was quitting as a friend of mine. I'm like, so weird. And so I walk in and Hans walks around in a circle around me, smoking a cigarette, never making eye contact, says, I can't do the German accent. I wish I could, but he's like, so you was a kid with the good skills and whatever. <laughs> And then I'm like, yeah, and I'm kind of nervous to meet him because he's such an icon as, as I was James. And he walks up the door. And I said to my buddy Jim, I said, what just happened? He goes, you just got hired. I said, okay, when do I start? He goes, you just started. 
I went in the door and didn't leave for four and a half years. But, wow. But that's how that happened. So right. it, was, it was, you know, my technical upbringing, my technical skills mixed with musical skills, mixed with people skills, mixed with whatever. And the dots connected like that. I know this is kind of a crystal ball question, but can you imagine how your career might have turned out differently had you ended up staying with James, coming up alongside him, being his assistant, maybe writing with him? Would would your would you do you think your world, your approach, your even the sound of your music, do you think it would be different? Uh, well, of course, to some extent, you know, um, but that would have been my preference, you know. In an honest moment, if, I like to say I write in my own style, but we're all like James is the first one to say that his score, The Fugitive, is very much him ch- channeling Jerry Goldsmith. That was mm, mm-hmm. we're artists. We all what comes out of us is what went into us. I'm much more of a James kind of a writer than I am a, a Zimmer kind of writer. I got asked to do the Hans singing for so long because when I graduated, everybody knew I could. I was one of the experts at his sound. And at first, you got to do what you got to do to get a job. But sure, I don't really write like that as much anymore. Um, I have it when needed. No, but uh, um, but no, I think working with James would have changed my career trajectory in a different way. Um, but I've had so many successes and so many failures and hardships and just things that I couldn't even tell you that, you know, that were bad. But you have to be grateful for them all because whatever they were, they got you to where you are. Right. Those questions are fun to think about, but they're irrelevant to me because it didn't happen that way. Right. And my path was to go through Hans Zimmer's world and he happened to not care for my music at all or you know and didn't help me Mm. you know i had to take my experience with him and be grateful for it and just build my own career brick by brick he everyone it's funny i I just just to put this out there everyone associates the small group of people who came in the door and got out the door of his world and became successful we got john powell and harry gregson left at the same time ramin javadi uh steve jablonski jeb sinelli i guess to an extent me them him us whatever right ten of us Hans gave Harry and John uh, a collaborative movie called Ants for DreamWorks. Then the next DreamWorks thing. And then now John Powell has a relationship with DreamWorks. And, you know, he gave Steve Jablonski to Michael Bay because I think he was sick of Michael Bay. (laughs) So then he, you know, Hans gave him, this is true, he gave him Transformers and that began Steve's career. All these guys are, are incredibly talented. It's not to take anything away from their talent. They're monster composers. But they got a little lift, a little help, a little, you know, and Hans just didn't do that for me. He just didn't care for my music or me. I don't know which. I'll never know. Hmm. So, uh, I, I kind of flourished getting out of that world and building my own place despite him, not because of him. Mm-hmm. That makes mm-hmm. sense. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, for sure. I'm just being honest with you. You know, like Ramin got some help. He got his first studio movie because Hans called the head of you know Warner Brothers and said, hey, this, use this kid for that. Off he goes. Yeah. He helped, you know, Jablonski with Transformers and John Powell, but with me, he didn't do anything. So that's which is incredibly tough for me, considering how much of my life I gave that man. Sure, yeah, absolutely. And like, for example, Lauren Balfe and I grew up through his. I, he was behind me in the in the timeline of things, but he was just a really hard worker, really talented guy who just kept hanging around and hanging around and got the shit kicked out of him for a long time, and eventually. And now he's probably one of the hottest composers working, you know, I mean, this guy's just does six movies a year and four television shows bananas. So I always want to just clear the air about that, that, you know, I'm not lucky in the sense that Hans helped me. I'm fortunate enough to be through his world, which gave me some street cred, but he didn't help me. Right. Uh, if not, maybe even the opposite, but. <laughs> so j- jumping forward a bit, well, not really jumping forward, but to a, a later question that I was going to ask, but 
you've been very candid on social media and in general with you know your journey and the ups and the downs and especially the challenges and how you sort of handle them and i'll never forget this one post that you made on the perspective form where you're driving back and you were just talking about having gotten the shit kicked out of you right like you just were like this was a tough day i did not i i was very hopeful about something and it didn't go my way that's the way it is onward we go i'm going to go play golf or whatever you know and I, I just wonder, like you, you. I think I feel like that kind of a open approach to it—the fact that you're willing to talk about it, that you're not pretending like things are perfect all the time—gives me the sense that you have some sort of way of dealing with the times that life really punches you in the face. What what kind of things do you do when it's just like it seems like everything is supposed to go your way and then it doesn't work out? Uh, man, it's thank you for that. I think that. I didn't intend to start this trend of, of, of being honest that way, but I mean, we all know that social media only has two sides, shine, yeah. right, everything's awesome, or I have cancer and I'm going to die next week. There's nothing. <laughs> right. Um, and I, I just did that because I was just really frustrated. And by the way, I got in big trouble for that video, so I learned my lesson um, and to a certain extent. But the amount of outpouring I got from people saying, wow, it's people who thought of me as a big composer. I don't really think of me that way. I think of me as a kid from Canada. But they were like, oh, even he has a tough day. I'm like – we all have, like everyone, John Williams may have a tough day now and then, maybe not like me, but I was just being candid about it because, um, I don't know, it made people realize that everyone, you know, I mean, I doubt you'll ever see Brian Tyler do that, you know, on, he's just not, he's always polished and shiny and he's a fantastic composer, but his image is such, uh, you know, I'm just like, if he had a bad hair day, that would shock the crap out of me. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Neither do I, by the way. So, <laughs> there you go. Um, but no, I think that uh, I think that understanding that that you're going to get punched in the face, and that quick sidebar: become a composer in today's age is really like being an entrepreneur, which is a fancy word for business for yourself. But when you're an entrepreneur, your successes are yours, and your failures are yours. It's not your agent, it's not the director, it's not your assistant, it's you. If you get punched in the face; it's your fault. You have to just realize that. Now, having said that, I just lost a movie that, uh, sorry, a really, really cool TV show. I mean, just right up my alley. And I knew the showrunner, who's the boss, but the production company wanted someone else and I didn't get it. And on paper, it should be a shoe in for me. You know what I mean? I had lots of success with other people and it just went a different way. And that's tough. You know, and you go, there'll be another one, I guess, you know, uh, but when you're young, it seems like there won't be another one. And you take those really hard. And, you know, I, I think we all do our, our uh, grieving in secret, <laughs> you know. Um, I, I remember Ben Affleck talking about borderline becoming an alcoholic on one of the superhero movies. He would just come back to his room, and not in public, and he would just sit there and just drink scotch until he fell asleep trying to f- figure out a deal with the day, you know. Oh, wow. So, you know, we all have our, our ways. And um, I, I do speak a lot about health and wellness. And I wish I could speak more about it because I think that's something that's not talked about. You're expected to be Iron Man or Iron Woman. Uh, and it's just hard because I've seen, I can't name their names, but I've seen plenty of really, really elite high people in different positions, composers, engineers, producers, who've been broke down and start crying at midnight. And it's just, it's a, it can be tough, you know? Mm. Yeah. I guess when you play at that elite level, that comes with it. You have to deal with elite problems and uh, at a very high, tough level. I mean, I think that just that idea of being so close to something like that, and then it's taken away for things that are beyond your control. That would be one of the toughest things. Like, 
you know, if I was going for something and I got my ass handed to me because they said, you know, you're just not good enough yet. I'd be like, that's hard, but at least that gives me a sense of control. I can do something tomorrow. I can work on getting better. I'll get another chance and we'll fight another day. But if you're like, that was supposed to be mine, or you feel like, you know, everything was said, like, as you say, on paper, that's supposed to be a shoo-in. That's, that's a tough thing. It is a tough thing. And I think that the one thing that I will say I'm proud of is, is, you know, whatever success I've had, touch wood, uh, I didn't deserve it more than you did, but no one can say I didn't work hard for it. You know, I, right. I'm, a, I'm a worker. I've, I did <laughs> to, to age myself. I did the math. Uh, I entered the workforce at 19 in Toronto. And when I turned 49, I've been in the business for 30 years. I did the math on the number of hours I've worked and I rounded it down to 50 years of hours. Oh my God. So, <laughs> 50 years old in life and has worked 50 years already. It makes no sense, right? Right. I think the hard work ethic is the only true through line, through line to success that I've ever seen. Everyone mm-hmm. I know all the composers that you just mentioned, whether it be at Ramin, Blonsky, those guys, even if they were given it by Hans, they still have to do the work, you know? Absolutely. They just got a start on it. But um, hard work is an important an important thing. And I always say you can't have a million dollar dream with a $1 work ethic. It just doesn't work. Yeah, that's a great point. This podcast is brought to you by the Screen Composers Guild of Canada, celebrating its 40th year in 2020. The SCGC is a national association of professional music composers and producers for film, television, and media whose mission includes promoting the music, status, and rights for film, television, and media composers in Canada. Special thanks to the SOCAN Foundation for financial support. For more information on the SCGC, please visit www.screencomposers.ca and follow us online at Screen Composers. And now, back to our show. You talk about, you know, your standard day at, uh, at remote control would be 18 hours minimum, sometimes stretching upwards to 30 on extreme times. And now you work eight hours a day for the most part because you've got a family, other commitments, and you just want to live a more balanced life as much as that's possible. But you still get as much, if not more, work done. Is that a, is that a product of you being better at your craft and having tools and methods that really work for you in terms of getting stuff done. Could you, if you could go back and do it differently, but only with what you had available in terms of tools at the time, would you work differently? Or do you think that's just the way it goes? You had to go through the grind. Those are the lessons you had to take. Uh, I mean, for me personally, it's all I can speak to. That's just the way it had to be. Right. Um, I, my first television show, I worked 18, 19 hours a day cause I wasn't good enough to do it any faster. You know, I, I was in over my head, which that's what, that's how you learn. Yeah. You know, everything you want is on the other side of fear. Courage is on the other side of the door of fear. You don't get the courage before you go in, which sucks. <laughs> um, but no, for me, I absolutely had to, to evolve, um, in my own way to be able to have the skill set. have the, my, my craft is very finely tuned my technology around me is set up for me to be successful and sound good and all that stuff. So I, right. my ability to work eight or nine hours a day, um, five or six days a week versus seven hours a day, 18 hours a day is just an evolution of being better at what I do. Um, and if I get a time crunch, I work harder and I can pull it off. I've never missed a deadline in my career or stuff like that. But I think, you know, I did a video called, uh, uh, on my AMA series called six minutes a day, the path to being a pro TV composer. And I'll, I got tons of like six minutes a day, like six whole minutes in one day. I'm like, dude, you know, you know, there, there, there isn't a pro composer who doesn't do nine, 10, 11 minutes of music in a day as needed. It's just kind of, that's the gig, you know? Yeah. 
Yeah. Um, and people were shocked. And I broke it down. I gave my method on how to do it. If you haven't seen it, it's on my YouTube channel. But it's it's great. Absolutely. Yeah. More manageable. But it's like, that's the gig. What are you going to do? Not deliver? So um, I just don't fuck around as much as I used to. I don't really surf. It may seem like I'm on social media all the time, but I'm not. I, I kind of post and, you know, I, I'm motivated to be done to, to enjoy my, my family, you know, family dinner is, is a ritual for me that I, it takes a lot for me to miss that. You know, my agents hate me because the way it works in Hollywood is all the producers at the end of the day at four o'clock or four, they want offload all their shit so they can go home with a clear conscience. So they call my agent to get answers on something. My agent calls me at five 30. I don't answer. <laughs> like, dude, I've been trying to reach you. I go, uh-huh. They go, no, like so-and-so asked me about then and it's time sensitive. I go, uh-huh. Well, I was having dinner with my family. And I, I've, I've trained them to like basically leave me alone for those two hours. So I won't answer the phone for anybody for anything. Seriously, I won't. I'm just like, nope. You know, even if it's like wow. off you Star Wars, I'll call you in an hour. It's like, you know, so it's and Fridays are the worst, right? Friday, the phone rings off the hook at five o'clock. All the producers want to have the weekend off, making sure that you're busy. So here's our notes that we haven't given you in four days on Friday at five o'clock. Right. Days, you know, awesome part about our job. But <laughs> So for me, if I get to the end of the day and I didn't get my minutes done or something, I'll come back in at four in the morning the next day to, to make it up, not to go back in the studio at night. That's all. Yeah, makes sense. Let's get into some of the shows. So would you say it's fair that, uh, or was it fair to say rather, that the tutors would be the sort of thing that puts you on the map? Oh, very much so. Yeah. It wasn't my first project, but um, it's a zeitgeist moment. There's the word of this podcast, but it was a show that everyone who touched it in any way, um, went on to huge success. You know, I mean, the costume designer, um, Henry Cavill became Superman, you know, mm. uh, the actor. It's just, you know, it was an amazing, amazing project that came to me, um, you know, through. Uh, and here's a great, it's a great story. It's a true story. The producer, executive producer, Sheila, I mentioned her earlier, who's the one who kind of greenlit me to be, you know, to get the show. Um, I'm, I'm sure Michael Dana was on the list and the Mimity and everybody else, but I was living in LA, LA at the time. Years later, we became friends. We were having dinner in Toronto. I said, let me ask you something. If I had lived in Toronto and pitched on the show, would I have been as high up the, the ranking as I was? She goes, no. You were definitely had an LA thing about you that brought you into a level above some of the other people, perception-wise. So there you go. You know, it was just kind of uh, whatever. I mean, you know, but they knew I was working with Hans Zimmer and we were doing, I don't know, Pirates of the Caribbean or something, huge movie of the day. So that helped, you know. Um, but to answer your question, it put me in the map. It put everybody in the map. I mean, I, I submitted for and won my first Emmy on the first season, which never happens in Hollywood. Wow. Yeah. You know, no one ever, if you get nominated, it's kind of a welcome to the club and you should just be happy to be here. You know, sure. Which I was. But then I won. So, uh, so yeah, it's very fair to say that the Tudors was the was the, the show that put me on the map. I mean, that sort of went on. It's sort of interesting to look at these things in retrospect because, of course, now, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty. We can say, well, it was because of this and this and this and this. And this is why. Be, and there's sort of this thing that's said about the Tudors that they sort of reinvented the costume drama. There must have been something in the water. Did you feel at the time like, whoa, this is going to be a big thing? I can feel it's like every department is working at, at this sort of like magical level? Uh, no, no. I, I had a very rough go on on the first episode because um, no one knew what we were really doing. Well, ah. Greenblatt, who runs NBC Universal Comcast, he was the head of Showtime. He invented, uh, he was the guy who created Six Feet Under and all that stuff. 
he had a vision for it, but no one really knew what it was other than we're not doing men in tights and we're not doing BBC Masterpiece Theater. And, you know, King Henry was a redheaded, tall dude and, and they hired, they put Johnny Reese Myers in as him. So we're already taking the Versace model at the time. Maybe it still is. <laughs> we're already taking liberties. But no, I mean, uh, we didn't really know um, what, what we were doing and how impactful it would be until the first season. And it was just like, it was such a huge success, you know? Did you feel, I mean, I'm, I'm imagining the answer is yes, but maybe you can sort of walk through what the process was in terms of like them saying, okay, we need something new and fresh and you're on this new thing and this pretty big deal and you're, you're, there's probably an enormous amount of pressure on you. When someone comes to you and says, we're doing it new, like don't do it, what the standard thing is, what do you even do? How do you start? That's, there's an evolution. I went from it scared me to death to me loving it. I love, uh, uh, there's a show I'm really close to getting that I touch wood that will allow me to do that is creating uh-huh. from scratch. And I, I love it. It's super hard. So you got to kind of embrace the suck and embrace the, you know, as Navy SEALs say, um, <laughs> a lot, but I, I, I want that, you know what I mean? I, I don't want a temp with, uh, you know, Forrest Gump in it. And, and you know what I mean? I want, I want to create a new world. Um, with the tutors, I didn't know how to do it. So I was just winging it. Um, it was a combination of orchestral programming, synth orchestral stuff, and me looking at period pieces of music, uh, period instruments at the time, you know, dulcimers and bowed Appalachian this and plucked that and, and rubbing it all together to create this sense of 1550 England. Um, you know, and it evolved over time. And my, I think my proudest version of this is Vikings where, you know, um, there was a shorthand with the producers. They all trusted me and it was still tough. I still had to like, write the first episode a couple of times, but at least I knew what I wanted to do was bring a quiet electronicness to it, which I think I, I think I did. Mm-hmm. There's a really interesting approach. Speaking of Vikings now, and I was going to ask about that, you know, before you quote unquote crack the code of that, First episode, you say three to four times, having to write it again. You're not really going for an ethnomusicological kind of approach to it, saying like this is what Norse music would have sounded like at the time. You're using electronica, as you say. That's an interesting sort of uh, way of describing it, quietly electronic. One thing that really sort of strikes me with that score is I feel like you're using distortion as an instrument. You're distorting all sorts of different sources and that creates this harmonic excitement. It creates these overtones. It has a life and an excitement in the same way that I think a musician brings to the table when they're performing. Is that a conscious thing that that was sort of used, like you're using uh, distortion as an instrument? Oh, very much so, yeah. Um, there's a tons and tons of plug-in tweaking that goes on, some very subtle, some very obvious, to take anything and make it sound a little bit more modern, a little bit more different, you know? Um, Oh, for sure, you know. Um, but the challenge was that they decided that the look of Vikings was to be very true to the to the time and rustic. So part of being the Viking, being a Viking, was the wilderness. the The, the environment was a character. You can go on a hike and die, you know. So you could fall on a rock, and so it was shot very. Uh, to, to give you an example, the opposite of that would be Man on Fire or George Miller's Three Hundred, where it's very saturated colors. And very hot, I call it colors. Well, Vikings doesn't have that. So to put the music on top of it, where I'm creating that level of saturation, you had to sort of do it with some level of finesse. Um, you just can't rock out on it. You know what I mean? You got to kind of 
but it, it deserved it sometimes in the battles to be gritty and stuff like that. That's where it modernized itself for me is when, you know, we would bring the electronics right to the forefront and put an 808 kick in there and stuff that you know, <laughs> Ludwig Gorenson's all being praised as awesome as he is for putting 808 in the score to Black Panther. I'm like, <laughs> but, uh, um, but no, it was a, it was a chance to create that language. And uh, again, back to what you just said, uh, being an ethnomusicologist, I, I don't advise this for anybody is to go into the, to the approach as a scholastic point of view of being, this is what was used. Like, who cares? You know, what matters is when you blow into a flute, does it evoke for you, you know, the place you want to be? If you have a Bansuri or a Ney, which may not be any way close to ethnically where you need to be, but to you, it just sounds like it belongs in that world. Mm-hmm. Right. So Vikings is now closing out in its final season with seven altogether. Is that right? And then you're working on the uh, on a new Vikings spinoff. Um, how did you keep track of and develop all these character themes, all these different sound motifs? You know, you talk about cues that are traveling cues. Uh, of course, characters have their cues. You know, moments have their have their themes. How do you keep track of all that and then go, okay, this is where we left this. This is the dynamic level. This is where the character's at back, you know, two seasons forward. We need to have this developed. Is there a system you have for that or is it just kind of an intuitive approach? I'm so lazy, dude. I don't have a system for that. My buddy, Michael Levine, who scored Cold Case for 100 years, had a binder of theme. You know, there's a guy who's got his act together. I, I didn't. But it was fun by the end between Sheila and the music editor, Yuri Gorbachev, who's in Toronto, and myself, it became this game where we'd hear a cue in the temp, which is all I mean. We go, where's that belong to? <laughs> I think it belongs to season four when Ragnar did, or, you know, Legath did this and Yuri said, actually, no, you reuse that in season four from season two when she did <laughs> it. became a game after a while. You know, there, there are certain themes that, that were just iconic that stayed in, you know, Ragnar watching his family leave theme stayed long after he died in, in the, in the show, you know? Um, but, um, no, it's it's when you're in that space for so long, it's kind of always on your mind, you know, but because we would do two seasons in a row, we do 20 in a row and they would air to 10, 10 chunks. So uh, I was just so into the show, you know, and so into uh, the characters, you know, um, I can't give away some spoilers, but there's a couple of characters that have definite sounds that as they reoccur and stuff like that. But that's the joy of it, you know, um, but no, I'm not that organized. I'm sort of, <laughs> you know. To be honest, the picture editors are better at it than me. They have an encyclopedic knowledge of what theme was used for what character and, you know, stuff like that. They did a better job of that than I did. Are you, uh, I mean, I think that, uh, you know, Shore's work on Lord of the Rings is sort of like the nth degree to maximalism in terms of how many themes you can develop for a single thing. Where do you put yourself on a, on a spectrum of how on one or the other side? Personally, I, I'm very big on monothematic kind of things, you know, like choosing one to three really big statements and then seeing how many different ways you can position those things. Are you on one or the other spectrum? Do you have any thoughts on that, like using a ton of themes versus using very few themes? I think it depends on the project. If it's a two-hour movie and the arc of attention for your listener is two hours, that's one thing. If it's TV where you don't hear it for a week – or even another night, it's a little bit different. But I find that I love thematic, motivic writing, whether it's a sound or a plug-in or a distortion or a theme or a French horn melody or whatever. I love thematic things that are attached to characters or even ideas. Um, but 
if you get too many in there, you're asking too much of the audience and it just becomes a little bit of an intellectual kind of, you know, back scratching kind of thing. So I think that, you know, James Horner is the great example. I, used to, I remember as a kid listening to his scores going, how did he get away with that? How did they let him write a 32 bar melody? You know, the picture's going by and he's just ignoring that. And he's just doing this big soaring tune. And I was always like, he must have some special permission to write, you know, that kind of stuff. And it's just how he wrote, you know, big arcs. Uh, you know, that's what we call cinematic writing and the opposite of that would be Bugs Bunny, which is, you know, really TV ish writing. So, um, I, I always look for a theme. I always look for an angle to attach to a character, to, to attach to an idea theme. Here's a little tip for younger composers. I learned is attaching a theme to an idea, say betrayal has more legs than a character because the character may come and go or evolve. Um, but the idea of betrayal is a part of if that's a theme of, like I said, the Borges. So there was always little themes for that. You know, there was, uh, you know, Zimmer's theme for gladiators, like the lust, you know, the the husband or the brother sister themes when opens the show. And so those things have more legs, you know, but I do love that um, finding things to attach to, to the screen, to characters. But like I would say I'm in the middle, I guess, is my answer. Like mm-hmm. I've never not written a thematic show or, or, or movie in my life. I just. I don't know how to not do that, you know, right. Pads and and all that stuff is just, uh, it's not my jam, you know? That's interesting. I mean, I think that idea of attaching themes to ideas is really powerful. If I think back again to Lord of the Rings, you know, the ring theme is the one that always comes to mind first. And I think it is because it's, when you hear it, you don't think about the physical object, the ring, you think about what it means, where it's traveled, all the horrible things that have happened uh, to everyone that has been in contact with this, you know, item of power. And it's really about that power and the darkness of that power. And it's so powerful for that. So I think that's a really interesting approach and a, and a way of thinking about those kinds of things and, and, and moving through that. Absolutely. That theme is genius because it, it's such a colorful melody with that major seventh pulling up and all that stuff. But it has an air of mystery to it. It's what, yeah, you're, you're spot on. You're not scoring the actual gold ring. You're scoring what it represents in the energy mm-hmm. of the universe. Much like, um, you know, uh, what jumps to mind is the the uh, the Ark of the Covenant theme from Raiders, you know. Right. Yeah. Awesome little ghosty, you know, even talking about it, seeing a picture of it, here comes the theme and it's this thing out there. It's not a gold box. It's the power of the Ark. Those things are a great way to get uh, lots of legs out of a theme rather than attaching it to a person or an object or a place or a noun, of course. Right. <laughs> you... Uh, one thing that comes through in your social media as well is that you have a great love of great food and great wine. <laughs> and it looks like lately you, uh, you know, looking at your IMDb list, uh, you've gotten more into scoring f- documentaries about wine. Is that, a, is that something that you followed uh, a rabbit hole down? Did you push for that? Or is that just something that came to you because people saw, here's a guy who obviously has this great passion for this stuff? It's a funny story. It came to me because a director sought me out which doesn't happen that often in your career, but he he scored, uh, sorry, he directed a movie called Somm, S-O-M-M, following the the plate of four young guys going for their master's sommelier degree, which if you guys know what that is, is one of the hardest tests on earth. And this is when wine was really becoming popular and, and, and you know, taking over the world. And I, I personally watched that movie 10 times. It's my kind of geeky sign. And I actually um, inspired me to go get my sommelier degree. So I have a level one sommelier degree, which is, nothing it's not like a master's degree it's you know whatever but so that director reached out to me unbeknownst to me or him that we both had his movie in common 
a couple of years later and I'm like, I'm in and you know, and documentaries have no money. You do it for the love of it. But, uh, and now he just basically won't leave me alone. <laughs> he's, like, <laughs> he's got one about, you know, the, the judgment in Paris, which was represented all wrong and bottle shock. You know, he's shooting and he's a crazy documentary. Uh, he's a gorilla. He's awesome. That guy. So we just, we get along really well as, as, uh, as friends and we just, like him and we like the subject matter so it's it's fun it's nice to have and he loves everything i do so there's no notes of any kind it's just like talking about what you said earlier i just go i just do what i do and he loves it so that's fun that's worth not getting paid very much <laughs> if, if the money's not not good i'm sure you get great wine gifts from him at the end of the uh <laughs> I do. I do that. yeah one thing that really kind of struck me was when uh, Netflix's um, wonderful um, Chef's Table came out, how inspiring I found watching that show and seeing those professionals do their job. I found it much more inspiring than, you know, documentaries about musicians or composers or conductors. Does wine and food kind of occupy a similar inspirational uh area in your life? Do you find that that's your sort of well to go to in terms of inspiration or getting away from the everyday craft of what you do? I'm always amazed that composers that don't cook or don't, don't appreciate wine. They're so related to me. You think about what it takes to, to give birth to a wine. Like it, it grows in the field, which is basically elegant farming. And then you have to nurture it and take care of it. And then when you enjoy a bottle of wine, it comes to your table and the waiter you know, he shows you the bottle, pulls the cork out. You have an anticipation of what you think it's going to be like. Then you actually have it. And then when it's done, you can reflect on it. Now, how is that different than going to the opera or going to a symphony? You walk All in right. and you have this feeling, what am I going to experience? You experience it. And afterward, you look back at it and you absorb it. It's consumed in real time, right? Unlike a painting where you can go from where the visually where the artist probably wants your eye to follow the journey and then you can do it again. You know, it doesn't work that way with music. Music is, is in real time. You experience it emotionally in real time you, as you do with eating food or as you do with texture of what you're crunching or drinking. So to me, I find them all related to each other. Um, and I love cooking. I'm the cook of my household. I, I, I feel like a bit of a restaurant line chef at times with <laughs> I love elegant cooking. I love elegant food. We just went away for the Mother's Day weekend. I had a very elegant dinner. I just love everything about the finesse, the craftsmanship, the artistry of really great fine dining. Um you know, I, I, it just speaks to me. Do you think we can ever expect Morris Wines uh, coming to our LCBO at some point in the future? One of my dreams. Really? Oh, yeah. If, if I ever retire, I'm not sure we ever really retire in this business, but I, I picture myself in a vineyard somewhere. Amazing. I, I proposed to my wife in Napa. We got married in Napa. Um, I'm a wine collector. I have about 2,000 bottles of wine in my wine. Wow. Yeah. By all accounts, I mean I've seen I've seen many, if not all, those wine documentaries as well because they just they are very inspiring. But all by all accounts, that world seems also very um, high stress, high level kind of like you know. I guess if you're doing it as a business as opposed to just for your for yourself and for fun. You know the uh, quick story. Uh, the only, I've only asked for two autographs in my entire life. One was Bruce Hornsby, who was my piano hero. He did a concert in Toronto at Manta when it was still there. And the other one was Thomas Keller, the chef of the French Laundry, um, our, the greatest American chef ever. He was consulting. Um, he does a lot of celebrity consulting on movies. Like yeah. He's the guy who made the Ratatouille. He, he cooked it and animated it based on his. Oh, wow. Okay. That's cool. I didn't know that. 
And we were working on a movie with Adam Sandler in Zimmer Days, with Adam Sandler called Spanglish, a very successful movie. James L. Brooks, huge producer. Yeah. yeah. And uh, Thomas Keller was brought in to teach Adam Sandler how to cook. <laughs> he, has the, he has the blue, the blue paper like Thomas Keller. So he was a consultant. So we're back at the studio working on the show and James L. Brooks brought Thomas Keller to the to Zimmer's room. We hung out and was talking and drinking wine and we were drinking great wine. We were having a whole culinary conversation in front of the room that no one understood but me and him. It was hysterical. Even Zimmer was like, what the fuck are they talking about over there? I was like, where do you find good demi-gloss and how do you, like all this sort of geeky stuff. But anyway, I, I brought my cookbook like a schoolboy and asked him if he would sign it. So Amazing. that one's in my in my kitchen as constant inspiration. But the French Laundry, uh, which is a the in my opinion, the greatest American restaurant, one of the greatest restaurants in the world, is such an example of precision and craft and artistry. And everything about it is astounding to me. And his approach to it and having built it and the way he he constructs it and the way he organizes his walk-in his walk-in refrigerator, all that stuff to me speaks to the organization of music. The cultivation of a craft first and foremost and then art is on top of that you know you can't conceptualize a dish if you can't cook it you know so i find there's a lot of pair i'm going off a little deep in here but um, no that's great that that speak to me and it just it, it's kind of part of my soul i guess Speaking of Keller, there's sort of another uh, parallel, which is that he's moved away from the brutality of the brigade system um, and that sort of like chefs throwing uh, dishes at, at their sous chefs that aren't up to par or whatever. And I guess maybe what we were talking about earlier, uh, this this move away from, you know, the Harvey Weinsteins of the world. Mm-hmm. That's sort of a nice that's a nice parallel. And, and, and I think that Keller proves that you can have an incredibly precise, amazingly well-crafted um you know, experience and uh, an art that you're delivering without that kind of brutality. So that's that's actually a very positive thing, I think. Yeah, there's another chef, uh, Eric Repair, who runs the, the the most celebrated seafood restaurant in New York City in Mongolia mm-hmm. called La Berna Den. And he is a very Zen, you know, Dalai Lama kind of guy. He talks a lot about his interviews having been raised as a young French chef and having dishes thrown at him, hot dishes on his apron when it wasn't good enough. And that he, when he took over La Berna Den, when the original partner died, he promised to bring an era of Zen to it. It's a very quiet kitchen, very relaxed. Everyone's in their space. No one yells. You know, um, there's a lot of autonomy. So he he is the opposite. He took the experience of it's like me working with Hans. It's an incredibly difficult environment, incredibly difficult, hard guy to work for, big pressure, big movies. And instead of it being fear based and belittlement and all that shit, it's Eric Repera's version of it is that. And I'm trying to bring that to me to my world as well when I can and try to hmm. human being first. <laughs> right. Show some empathy. That's fantastic. So you have your wonderful AMA series on YouTube, which we'll link to. Uh, Trevor is giving away incredible insights and sharing his passion for what he does, uh, both technical and artistic, and and of course with the um, you know the interpersonal relationships and the director composer relationship. Where else can people find you online and follow you? Um, if you go to any of my social, there's a Linktree link that has access to all my stuff, whether it be my website, which is my name, TrevorMorse.com, YouTube, Instagram, um, Facebook, and Twitter, uh, link to my Spotify. It's, it's a Linktree. Any one of my social will have the link to it. Great. I think I'm at Trevor Morse Composer on most of them, but they're all a little bit different. We'll put, we'll put some links in the notes for sure. Any parting words or asks of the audience before we let you go? No, I uh, just, you know, I think... I think the one thing that's interesting, a perspective that I, I struggle with is being a Canadian living in the States. You know, um, Howard Shore, when I was in Toronto, had just finished Saturday Night Live as music director and for Cronenberg, that relationship had started. 
and he was on his trajectory and has lived in up, upstate New York ever since, a town called Tuxedo, New York. Um, I think Michael Dan has, has gone back and forth between Toronto and L.A. because he's such a superstar. And, you know, there's I find that there's a perception about us Canadians who live in L.A. as a little bit of traitors a little bit in some way. <laughs> you know? But I said it earlier I, when you asked the questions, I really I was not moving to Hollywood like I'm moving to Hollywood, baby. I just went pragmatically because that's where the work was. Um, and I built a life here and I met my wife here and I have kids here and all that stuff. But I mean, I, I, I you know, people say, where are you from? It's Toronto, man. That's that's my hometown. That's where I, you know, started my career. And um, all my family's there. Well, I've been able to see them because of COVID. You guys got to get your COVID act together, by the way. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I just I just think that it, it's one of those things that I wish people could be more inside my head and how much I am a an Englishman in New York. I'm an alien here in California. But, um, you know. It's tough. I, I wish in a way that I could split my time between Toronto and L.A. Um, uh, that would be for me. I would spend I would spend August through Canadian Thanksgiving every year in, in Canada. The change of colors are hard to beat. See my family and stuff like that. So, um, you know, it's that's always on my mind, you know, kind of being you know, having having one foot in one place, having my heart be in Canada. You know, right. I'm, I'm nominated for a, a CSA award this year for the, the final episode of Vikings. And, you know, it, it would, you know, this isn't a plug for the vote. It's just like it would mean so much to me to win that award because it's our it's our Golden Globes. Mm-hmm. Canada. You know, I, I, I love going to the to the CSA Awards. Unfortunately, it's virtual this year, which it should be because of COVID. But, um, you know, that that award strangely holds a lot of, of value in my heart. So I'm hoping to put one of those on my shelf someday. Nice. That's wonderful. Well. Trevor, thank you so much for taking the time. Congrats on everything. Congrats on, I mean, I'm sure it's it's uh, both happy and kind of sad to see Vikings go. There's a little ways to go still, I think, for you, but uh, that's a huge success. All the other shows you've worked on, uh, I think everyone I know and and that's on the radar that uh, knows you is very proud of everything you've done for Canada as a Canadian composer living in L.A., so I don't think... Uh, you have to worry too much about that. Um, and thanks so much for taking the time today. It was a fantastic conversation. Really enjoyed it. Thanks for your candid, uh, uh, you know, insights into everything. And uh, yeah, for sharing your passion for music with us. Oh, man, those are very kind words. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Uh, I will I will part ways with this saying on my website, there's an email you can reach me at. I think it's Ask Trevor at something, you know. But if, you, if you're out there and you're a young Canadian composer and you're 16 or 24 or 44, um, if I can help you at all, whether it be advice or, or something like that, just email me and just put in the subject matter, like Canadian composer or something like that. I get, I get flooded with this stuff, but I have a soft spot for every time a Canadian asks me to have coffee, I always say yes. <laughs> you know, I get someone, hey, I'm from Toronto and I'm, I'm going to be in L.A. Would you have coffee with me? I always say yes, because I just remember when I was that guy, I didn't get a ton of help, but the people who did help me really made a difference in my confidence ability and maybe a little hookup or a little something so if i can if i can reach down and do that for anybody else it'd be my pleasure well that's very generous thanks again trevor have a great one you too thanks for listening if you enjoyed this conversation please consider showing your support by giving the show a five-star rating and sharing the episodes with your friends and followers the screen composer studio is produced by myself adrian ellis graphics and post-production assistance by nick grimshaw Special thanks to our managing director, Tanya Dedrick, as well as Charlie Finley, Elizabeth Hannon, and Guggen Singh for their support. For more information on the SCGC, please visit www.screencomposers.ca and follow us online at Screen Composers or reach out at tscs at screencomposers.ca.